Are you guys ready to jump back into Colossians? Yeah. All right, we are now on part five. For those of you who may have missed any of the earlier parts, uh, they're all online. Feel free to, to catch up uh, on our, uh, through our website. Um, but this is really good stuff, and uh, we, we're going through it uh, diligently and slowly, and it's actually been uh, fantastic. I've really enjoyed it, and I hope that you are as well. So I'm going to jump in this morning. We are actually, wait for it, this is part five, but we are breaking new ground. We're going into chapter two. <laughs> All right. Phil's my mentor, if you haven't figured that out. <laughs> I learned from the best. Um, so we're looking at chapter 2, uh, and we are going to start with verse 1. And let's see if I can get this on the screen. All right. Let's read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll go back and take a deeper look. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All right, let's, uh, let's take a look at this first part here. It says, Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So as we have seen already, this is uh, one of Paul's prison letters. He's writing this from prison, and this is a, a church he has not been to. He has not met them. Uh, he's learning about them through Epaphras, who had brought, he had brought a report to Paul to let him know how it's going um, and the, the encouraging things about this body of believers there in Colossae. And Paul is very encouraged by what he is hearing. Uh, there are also some concerns which he addresses in this letter as well. Um, but it's interesting that he has this struggle. He, he says, he, he terms it as a struggle that he has for them and for those at Laodicea who he had not met as well. Uh, he, he had not met any of them face to face. So it's almost as if he's got more of a um, kind of a concern for them because he had not met them yet face to face. But it's lovely to see that coming out in his letter as he writes to them. So uh, he, the next line there says, uh, that their hearts may be encouraged. And this is um, really Paul understood the dangers of discouragement uh, to any believers, especially young believers, and the danger it presents to them. And this is something we really should remember as well that discouragement can, can be very um, well, dangerous because it can bring us to a place where we are vulnerable and susceptible uh, to the enemy's attacks, um, to other people's um, uh, perhaps not-so-wise um, 
advice and things like that. So this is something that he likely prayed quite a bit for them was that God would encourage them. And I think it's a good reminder for us that we should always be praying for one another to be encouraged. Um, Many of you here have the gift of encouragement. Um, Perhaps you're an exhorter. And, uh, you know, exhorting, being someone who has the gift of exhort, uh, uh, the gift of uh, exhortation is someone who's not only saying always encouraging things, but giving uh, warnings and uh, beckoning people to um, come and, you know, perhaps turn away from this or that, or, but it's also encouragement. And so to have that gift is a very valuable thing we need people with this gift in our church, and it's, it can be hard when you don't have anyone encouraging you. So those of you who have this gift, we need you, and we need you to flan- fan that into flames and use your gift uh, well and a lot. I have benefited from that gift through others, and it's a blessing to me. So he he understood the danger of that. And so he says that their hearts may be encouraged. And next he says, being knit together in love. And this is right here is one of the, probably the most powerful ways that we are encouraged as believers is when we belong to a body and that body of believers have been knit together in love. And it's a, interesting description of what that can look like. But it's a very, very um, close bond with one another, with your brothers and sisters. And remember when we started uh, this early in the series, we talked about the brothers and sisters um, in Christ and how that should be a reflection of, uh, of a family of brothers and sisters and how close they are. Um, But being knit together in love is very encouraging and can be very helpful in strengthening us through the tough times. And this is is to be, our goal as a body is to be knit together in love. And we know that that comes especially when we are all in Christ and in his spirit. And we have that unity when we are. The next line here says to reach all the full excuse me to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now these we've talked about this a good bit this mystery which is Christ not only is it Christ but it's Christ in us. And not only was it a mystery that it was brought to the Jewish people, but even more of a mystery, the fact that it went beyond the Jews to everyone, including us, that this mystery of Christ in us. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing. So he, he points this out one more time here about this mystery and also reminds us that it is in him. It is in Christ that we have these hidden 
treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And they're not hidden, it's just that they're in Christ. So to access these, we must be in Christ. That, that little phrase there of in him is speckled throughout the New Testament. And it's important that we understand and pay attention to that because oftentimes people want to claim all of these riches and these um, benefits and these promises, yet they don't want to remain in Christ. And there's a problem with that because there are prerequisites to receiving this, this inheritance and receiving these riches and these things that come because they come through Him and they're available in Him, not apart from Him. So this is a, a, a re-emphasization, is that a word, re-emphasis, this, this re-emphasizes uh, the fact that these hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him, in Christ. All right, let's move on to verse 4 and 5, where he says, He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Now, delude, delude is uh, to deceive or fool someone. Plausible arguments often is used in a deceptive way. So basically, Paul is saying here, I say these things in order that no one else may fool you or deceive you with clever-sounding arguments that are actually deceptive. And he says, though I'm absent in body, I am with you in spirit in standing against this. And deceptive arguments are always a serious danger to believers. Paul would not have written about these and reminding them about this um, if they weren't a danger. There would be no need in wasting his uh, time writing about it. But they are a danger, and they're not only were they a danger back then, that, but they're very prevalent now and today among believers. And I would say even more so today with the amount of access we have to all kinds of plausible arguments that try to delude us constantly. So I think it's even more so that we need to remember what Paul is saying here, that there's a danger in that, and why it's so important that we are solid and firm in especially the the preeminence of Christ that we talked about so much, because a lot of these arguments come at the expense of the preeminence of Christ. Christ is good, yes, but there's also, and there's these, it's this bringing him down, not keeping him up where he needs to be, where he is. And so there's a, there's a danger of being fooled by these arguments. So Paul reminds us of this uh, as he's writing to the Colossians, and this is why it's so important that we not become solo Christians and that we are in a body of believers so that we can help one another from being fooled 
by these plausible arguments. Not only that we can help one another, but the shepherds can help as well uh, of the wolves that come in sheep's clothing. They don't always necessarily step their foot in the door here. They come in other ways, especially the other ways we have now, whether it's through your phone or through your computer, TV, work, wherever it might be. But to be plugged into a body of believers, and these people have access to you in a very personal way, you're living life together, there's some uh, safety in that. You can, you can, you can say accountability but that almost sometimes carries a negative connotation, but that is important, accountability. But there's a safety in us being plugged in to a body so that we are all able to help guard and protect one another, and especially with the various giftings that we have um, to bring, whether it's you know exhortation or whether it's teaching or a prophetic gift or discerning of spirits. All of these things that are helpful in helping to protect us from these, these deceiving arguments. And listen, this is, this is coming hard at the church. And you see a lot of churches who are caving. They are allowing this to come in, this mixture. Uh, next week, we're going to really start getting into this even more so about the potential of the danger of mixture coming into the church, mixture of religions, mixture of various forms of spirituality infiltrating the church. Those who identify as Christian yet participate in things that God has forbidden and so it's important that we really take an honest look at some of those things and some of those dangers because they have become and are becoming so much the norm that we often don't even recognize the, the danger. We're being deluded by their plausible arguments. And lastly, he says here, rejoicing not lastly, but almost lastly, rejoicing to see your good order. Now, it's interesting. Paul was happy to know of their good order. And and the reason is because not every church to whom Paul wrote had this good order, that he could say this about them. And one church that you might remember and think of is the the Corinthian church. And this wasn't... The Corinthian church was an example of a church to which the Holy Spirit had bestowed many gifts. His charismata, his... Charisma gifts, charismatic gifts, his spiritual gifts had been poured upon. The Holy Spirit had given out many gifts to this church, the Corinthian church, and they were actively using them. But with that blessing, uh, began to, there began to arise some issues. And some of the issues were, it seemed that 
Um, they were beginning to compete with one another with these gifts. They're in their eagerness to, to use them in their church gatherings. They were beginning to create some disorder. And they were starting, some of them were drifting into more of a uh, self-centered use of those gifts. And not only with the spiritual gifts, but other things. You remember last week when we had communion, we mentioned Paul's reprimanding them about how they were taking part in communion. This was the Corinthian church, the same church that I'm talking about, and how they were not even, they were coming to the, the communion table unworthily. They, they were not checking themselves, asking God to search me, O oh God, point out anything in me that offends you before I take part in this. But they were also not thinking about the other members of the body who had not made it here yet, and they're going on without them and, and taking part in the Lord's Supper and not thinking of them and waiting for them. And Paul's reprimanding them on that as well. But this is particular to the, what he's saying here, what he's commending the church at Colossae, the Colossians, about that they have this good order. And he wasn't able to necessarily say that so much about the Corinthian church. And you can read this very clearly. I would, I would encourage you to, to do so in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. Now, I'll just, this, the, the verse here I'm going to show you kind of sums it up, what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in verse 40. It says this, But all things should be done decently and in order. Okay, so he's commending the Colossians for their good order. He had to correct the Corinthians about not having the good order and reminds them here, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, I'm going to pause here because here's the, the sad thing, I think, about this. A lot of believers and churches, sadly, they take these corrections that they see in 1 Corinthians and this example of the Corinthian church getting into some error or having some issues come up because of these spiritual gifts being in operation that the Holy Spirit had given them to use in their gatherings. And they were starting to, as I mentioned, uh, some of these things were starting to kind of creep in. Many churches today and believers, because of how they've been taught on this, have taken this to mean one of two things. Number one, there's the teaching of cessationism, that these things have ceased. They are no more. And listen, I have looked at this argument and how this is supported in Scripture, and it is a very hollow argument. Um, I don't have time to get into that here. Maybe one day we will, but... The, uh, the, um, the links to which they go to try to support this um, interpretation uh, is um, surprising to me. But let me just say that we don't believe, uh, speaking from leadership, we don't believe that here. If you do, doesn't mean you can't be here. That's fine. But I would encourage you to really dig in. Don't just take this from someone someone's teaching. 
dig into what Scripture says and doesn't say, and, and learn for yourself whether these things have ceased. So anyway, that's not my point, but there are churches who think, oh, these things have just gone away. At the closing of the canon of Scripture, at the death of the last apostle, there is no more need for those things. That's hogwash. There's a huge need, even more so now, for those things. Um, The gifts of the Spirit are very needed. We are becoming a powerless church without the operation of these gifts, of these supernatural gifts. And it's unfortunate that we are becoming such a powerless church. But when Paul would describe churches who proved the presence of Jesus Christ, he said it was done through power. And when he talked about power, he was talking about the, the dunamis power, the power that came through the Holy Spirit and operated through people, through these supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And so to say that there's no need for that anymore is just, that makes no sense to me. There's, there's a greater need, I believe, even now. But to have these gifts apart from the Word, well, that's a very dangerous thing. And we must have both. We must be well-rooted in the Word and also operating in the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. So a lot of churches, they don't necessarily believe in cessationism. In other words, these things have ceased. These spiritual gifts are no more, are no longer for today. Some, some churches don't believe that, but they do believe that because of what he was addressing to the Corinthian church and what we see here, it's really not something we want in our churches. And they, and they just, they really just don't, they don't welcome that at all. And they will quench any um, beginnings of the Spirit moving in such a way and operating in such a way. So we've all been to churches that either line up in one of those two ways. They may say, no, we don't believe these things have ceased, but don't bring it into our church. And so we want to, we want to remain balanced on this. I mean, would you agree with me that if, if there is something that God wants us to have, a gift, a spiritual gift, that will bring not only... Uh, clarity of truth, but it will bring power so that when we bring the gospel message, it's demonstrated in power. Would you agree that that would actually be a good thing to have? Now, some of you, and on this topic, is like, man, I'm just already uncomfortable you talking about it, David. (laughs) And I just really don't want us to be that kind of church. So I want us to be able to talk about this and look at Scripture and look at what Scripture has to say. Because we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different upbringings and different teachings that we have received. So most often we're viewing all of these things through those lenses that, that we have um, accumulated throughout our life. And there are times where we need to strip those things back and go back to the Word and read it at face value. 
not read it through the lenses of such and such teacher or such and such Bible scholar. No, we need to go back to the Word and read it for ourselves. So this is, this is one of those examples of Paul makes some corrections to the Corinthians because of how uh, these things are getting a little out of order. And now, so often, the, the, the teaching is now, then we just have nothing to do with those things. And it, it, is, it is a shame because we need these things in operation in our churches, but we need them done in good order. So if you take this verse right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, where he says at the end, he says, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now let's back up a little bit, give it a little more context. Here's what he says right before it. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now look at me, church. I'm going to say a word that for some people makes the hair stand up on the back of their neck. Tongues is not a cuss word, okay? It simply means an unknown language. It's unfortunate that the King James chose to use tongues because that's kind of what has stuck with so many Bible translations because we just don't use that word nowadays. So when we hear tongues, it just sounds a little weird. Now it's just associated with, you know, you know, charismatic churches and, and things like that, the gifts of the Spirit. But it simply means, the original Greek simply means an unknown language, a language that is not known by the speaker. So the speaker is speaking a language or a tongue that is unknown to them. They did not know this language before this gift was given to them to start speaking. And we see the, the prime example, the first example of this in uh, Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit, the gift, the promised gift of the Spirit was poured upon them by Jesus. And they began, they opened their mouths and began to speak in other languages that they did not know. And the people around them had from all these other countries, were hearing their language being spoken. So that was a, it was a supernatural gift that was being demonstrated. The power of God was being demonstrated, and it, it got people's attention. And there were thousands added to the number that day because of the power that was demonstrated on that day. So, can we be okay if we say the word tongues from up here, okay? Yeah. Now, um, this, this is what I mean by it. It's frustrating that most people hone in on, but all things should be done decently in order, or, you know, if it, you know, none of those things are going to be in order, so don't bring them into the church. No, Paul says, so my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Okay, I really couldn't be more clear than that. So let's, but let's back up a little bit more and see a little bit more of what Paul is saying. So we'll back up and, and, and look at verses 
um, starting with verse 26. Paul says, again, there's a lot more before this, and I really would encourage you to read these, these chapters in, in the whole book of 1 Corinthians. But Paul says, what then, my brothers? And this is where he's talking to a church that gathers just like we're doing right now. This is what he says it needs to be like. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an unknown language, or an interpretation, which means an interpretation of tongues. So the language is unknown to anyone. We need someone to then interpret it into the language that the people know. That's what that's saying. I'll read that again. When you come together, each one has... So remember, Paul is always explaining the body is made up of different members who have different gifts. We're not all the same, and we're not all going to have the same gifts. And that's a God-ordained thing. The Holy Spirit picks and chooses as He sees fit, and that's, that's wonderful because that's why we actually need each other. If, if I stood up here or Phil could stand up and say, I've got all the gifts of the Spirit. I really don't need you. You can go home now. You know, that's ridiculous. We need each other to bring our gifts to the body. And this is what he's saying, the people with, all, with the various gifts. When you come together, each one has a hymn, another would have a lesson, another has a revelation, another has an unknown language, another has an interpretation of that unknown language. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue or an unknown language, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and then let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What that means is there is self-control in operating in these gifts. It's not just this overwhelming thing that you can't control. No, no, the spirit... The, prophet is, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the, to the prophet. The gift is subject to the person who's operating in that gift. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, you kind of start to get the, the, the theme of what Paul is saying. Yes, Paul is correcting some things, in these three chapters in Corinthians, but he is in no way saying that these things should not exist in our church gatherings. This is not rocket science to read these passages and understand what Paul is saying. He's saying, let's do these things orderly. Let's do them in a non-confusing way. And let's do them in a way that is building up 
the church. What a wonderful thing. But so often these things have been just, I, I, I mean, there are teachers who say if any of these happen in your church, they're demonic. And can I just pause here and say, all of you know of the, um, the, the unforbid, unforgivable sin. And a lot of people just want to, you know, what exactly is that? What is that? It's, it's really not hard to see the context of when Jesus spoke of that. And the context is, Demons had just been driven out of someone, and the Pharisees say, they said, well, he's able to do that because he does it with the power of Satan, not the power of God. And Jesus then says, you can blaspheme me and be forgiven, but you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? That cannot be forgiven. The context is to say what the power of God has done through the Holy Spirit is demonic. That is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. And and we really need to read that and pay attention to what it's saying. So that's why I would say to you, be very, very careful to label someone who may be operating in a gift, even if you think it's not truly of God, you need to slow down before you label that and speak anything out of your mouth. That's what Jesus says. You need to be very careful. Okay, that's just, I'm just being, I'm just saying, hey, this is, that is the context. So, So when it comes to this, And the spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit operating through believers with these spiritual gifts, we have to be really careful of how we um, of how we teach about these or believe about these, what we say about these. And I see a lot of teachers are very just careless when it comes to these things. So, uh, it's clear that Paul is not, he is not saying these should not be in your church. No. If you go back to the beginning of, of 14, I didn't mean to put all this time into this, but I just feel like we need to do it. I don't even have these. Here he is again saying this, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue or an unknown language speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in an unknown language builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want, listen, this is Paul. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. 
Did y'all hear that? This is what Paul says. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, this couldn't be more clear. Listen, we don't need a Bible scholar to interpret this. This is very easy to understand, the things that Paul is saying here. And he's encouraging the believers in Corinth uh, who are already, already operating in these gifts, but he's telling them again, hey, I wish that you all speak in tongues. Elsewhere in this passage, he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. But his point is, what he's saying is, but it needs to be done. If you're going to do it in a gathering, it needs to be done in such a way that it's going to build up the church. It's going to build up others. So if you, if you come to a gathering, and, and, and this is important that we know this, because a lot of people get this wrong too. If we're in a gathering and someone gives a message in an unknown language, okay, so they've spoken out loud for everyone to hear, then what needs to happen is there needs to be a pause, and we need to see if there is someone with the gift of interpretation of tongues so that we can all benefit from what that message in this unknown language is saying. And so we hope that God, the Holy Spirit, will bestow onto someone the gift of interpretation. And, but the Scripture says we should only have two, two, three at the most of those. Okay? It doesn't say don't have any. It says you can have two, three at the most. And then, oh, sorry. And that's enough. But if one is given and there's no one to interpret... Then it says, listen, it doesn't say that that person is speaking in demonic tongues. It doesn't say that that person is in the flesh. It doesn't say that that person is in sin. It says that person should be silent and speak only to themselves and to God because it is a language that you speak to God. Tongues is a language, an unknown language that is used to edify yourself unless it's interpreted. It's very simple to understand this. So he's saying if there is no one to interpret, then they should speak quietly to themselves and to God. It's, it's very simple. Because there's no benefit in a person continuing to speak in an unknown language when there's no interpretation. Because it's not going to benefit anyone. But he says, prophecy, however, is done in a language that everybody understands, and prophecy is more beneficial, unless the person who gave, or unless there's someone who can interpret the message in tongues, then it's just the same and beneficial as prophecy. So that's what Paul is saying. And, and Paul clearly say, says, as we, as we saw there, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, this is clearly written in Scripture, but we see how churches have done completely the opposite. Now, we're not the role model here at LifePoint. I'm not saying that. 
But I am saying I want to be scriptural. And I think that we all want to be scriptural. Now, with, with the, the bestowing of spiritual gifts as seen fit by the Holy Spirit comes responsibility of being in good order, of not being confusing, and of it being done in such a way that it will build up the church and edify. Listen, some of the spiritual gifts we need. We need the gift of uh, a word of knowledge. So we can cut right to the chase. God gives someone a word that this person doesn't want to reveal or maybe doesn't know. God tells them something, and the person humbly offers, would this mean anything to you? And all of a sudden, tears are coming from their eyes because it cuts straight to the heart. So are you going to tell me that we don't need those gifts today? Are you going to tell me that we don't need to be able to discern spirits? The gift of discerning of spirits, of whether or not someone is operating in a a religious spirit or a, a Jezebelic spirit or a spirit of fear or a spirit of lust or all of these different things, why would we not want to have the gift of being able to discern the spirits or to know if this is of the Holy Spirit? No, we, we need that gift. Gift of wisdom, word of wisdom. This is not just being a wise man. This is a gift that is, boom, given to someone for that situation. And another thing to remember, these gifts are not for ourselves, and that's part of the error that some of the Corinthians were getting into. They were kind of doing it in a selfish way, in a self-centered way. The gifts of the Spirit are for giving. They're actually, yes, a gift from the Spirit, but they're a gift for us not to keep to ourselves, but to give away. Now, the one exception is the gift of tongues, because Scripture says that it is for the edification of ourselves. It is a language that we speak to God, and it's not understood by anyone else unless someone is able to interpret that. So that's what Scripture says about tongues. So that is the exception. That is a gift that you can, you can spoil yourself with. But, but that's just, to me, it's, a, it's wonderful to think there's a gift that can be used to, to help edify myself and strengthen myself. But these gifts, for the most part, are to be given. And the, gifts, the gift of healing is actually not the gift of healing. If you read the text, the original, it's the gifts of healings. It's, it's plural. There's to be more than just one. So these are gifts that are to be given to those who are in need of these for the edification of the body, for the building up of our church. Good stuff, right? And that was not even from Colossians. That was from Corinthians. <laughs> so we'll, do a, we'll do a series on Corinthians one of these days. That'll be fun. Um, but let's, let's stay let's stay balanced and scriptural with this, okay? Please read this for yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth regarding these scriptures. Before you go and read these three, uh, if you're going to read 1 Corinthians, 
Put aside all of the teaching that you have received because there's a lot of opinions out there about this. Put it aside and ask the Holy Spirit who is the one who leads into all truth. That's what Jesus said, to lead you into all truth about these. You will be amazed at how simple it actually is. And you're like, how did they get all of that out of that? Well, it's called reading into Scripture. So just do away with all the teachers who have said this, the Bible scholars who have said that. Get rid of it and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the truth of God's Word and see what He does. All right. Finally, Paul says, and the firmness of your faith. So that was the last part of the sentence. So he says, for, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, it's interesting, as a side note here, I'm not going to spend much time here. I just want to mention this, this Greek word. I really can geek out on words, so I go down. I, I like to go into the Greek and the Hebrew and stuff, and just I, I'm real geeky like that. But the, the Greek word used, Paul uses here for firmness is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. That original Greek word, you understand the, the New Testament was written in Greek, not King James English, it was written in Greek. So we have to rely on translations of the Greek. So if you go back to the original language, the Greek, the word that he uses here is found nowhere else in the New Testament. And I thought that was very interesting. I don't come across many words that you don't find anywhere else. But you do see it used in the Septuagint. If you know what that is, that is the oldest known Greek translation of the Old Testament. So New Testament was written in Greek, okay? That's the original language, not English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But there was a translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, and that is one of the oldest translations that we have. It's called the Septuagint. Sometimes it's abbreviated LXX, means 70, because there was actually 70 scholars who were involved, 70 or 72 scholars involved in, in that translation. So if you go back to the Septuagint and look at the Old Testament, you actually do find that Greek word. They chose to use that Greek word to translate from the Hebrew. And you see it right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. It's used several times, and it describes, maybe you've heard this word, the firmament. Have you ever heard of that word? That's an old King James word. We don't use that today. Most people don't even know what it means. So if you look in your translation, it will say the great something like the great expanse, or some might say a canopy. What that was is when God, remember the earth was void and without form, and there were waters. It was surrounded by water. It was encircled by waters. Now, we can't fully understand this, but I don't think it was like we think just water sitting on the earth, like our oceans, but no land. I think it was even beyond that. I think it was a, a waters like, 
a bubble of water around the earth. I can't say that for sure, but if you read, if you read this, you start to think, okay, this was, this was not what we think of. So when God, in the very beginning, he, he decided to, he spoke and he separated the waters, the waters below and the waters above. So this is not separating the waters on land. This was before that. This was when he separated the waters, the lower and the upper. So there was a separation where he pushed waters up, 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 above, and then the waters down below onto the earth. He separated them this way, and it caused the in-between that we would probably call the atmosphere. Scripture refers to that as heaven. Now remember, there are at least three heavens. This would be the, I guess, the lower heaven. Often it's referred to as heaven, but there's also, remember, the third heaven. So anyway, this, this was this, it refers to this as this firmament. In, in King James, they call it the firmament. A, a, a more um, modern way of saying it would be a great expanse, a great canopy that separates those waters. And it was known in, in, this, in the ancient times that this was fixed. It was immovable. So this sky that they would look at that would be blue, the color of water, was actually immovable. That's how it was often described. And so this Greek word that Paul uses here as firmness of faith The only other place you see it is when they translate these Genesis scriptures of separating the waters and that separation expanse is called the firmament. That Greek word was used to describe this immovable separation. I told you I geek out on stuff like this. But all that means is this. Paul was commending them because their faith seemed immovable, firm. And this is how he wants our faith to be, not just individually, but but as a church. Immovable, firm. He commended them on the firmness of your faith in Christ. And that's how we should be with with Jesus Christ as preeminent above all. Always have been, has been, always will be. He is superior. And that faith in who he is, his preeminence, and what he came here to do in the flesh, all of that should be firm, a firm foundation. And Jesus alludes to this when he shares this parable. He says, everyone then, this is Jesus talking, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. 
Jesus is saying the same thing, and we see this teaching of the firmness of our faith being taught not only by Paul, but it was taught by Epaphras as well to these believers who then received this message gladly and put their faith in the rock. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible word. God, I ask that anything that I said this morning that is not of you, that you would wipe it from everyone's minds and that you would allow it to just completely fall away. But God, if this is your truth, then I ask that it would, it would penetrate to the ready soil and take root and bring forth fruit in whatever way that needs to look, God. We want to know your truth. We don't want to know someone else's interpretation of your truth. We want to know your truth given to us and taught to us by your Holy Spirit. God, we love you for your truth. We love you for all that you do. You are preeminent, and our faith is in you and you alone. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my